The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's just a way of acknowledging these four beautiful attitudes of the heart, qualities of the heart, emotions of the heart, and we just find them of value in a very simple and functional way. Can you imagine living your lives and having a relationship and just surviving without the capacity for basic friendliness, without that tenderness of compassion, without being able to appreciate what's beautiful and to touch into joy and handle what's ambiguous with um, equanimity? You know, just that balance that knows how to be when things are confusing, when it isn't clear what's going on. We don't want to have to close down or be in denial. So these qualities of the heart, we want to see them not as something special, but as the basic ground of uh, human life. Can we live today with these only these four emotions or four qualities of kindness, basic kindness, basic goodness, tenderness of compassion, appreciative joy, seeing what's beautiful and good, letting it touch the heart, and the quality of equanimity. And take your time and listen to the body, make adjustments, <clears throat> anything that helps the body feel settled. We're interested both in that sense of releasing unnecessary tension and that sense of sitting up, this intention to be right in the middle of our life right now, upright, alert, unafraid, and also relaxed, released, soft, undefended, So be curious about both of those qualities, uprightness and softness, and see what feels right. So in a way, these first moments of a sitting period, we're learning how to land. Landing right here in the experience of embodiment. This beating heart, this breathing body, this sensitive feeling heart, this neurotic, habit-bound thinking mind. This is our ground, like it or not. We don't really have a choice except to land in this life, this activity of the body and mind. This is the one world, the one life we have. So the important question is, can it be safe to relax right now and to receive, to feel what's here right now, to feel, to open to. So we're not trying to make something happen. We're not trying to get somewhere. We're learning how to land and open and feel. And even with practice to allow this life, the activity of this body and the mind, to be the way that it is right now. And you might even intuitively sense what a relief it can be for me not to have to manage, not to have to control or fix or get somewhere. So, The language isn't perfect, but something like a willingness to be 
instead of thinking I have to do. A willingness to be open instead of needing to fix or get somewhere, become somebody. And we're learning, in a sense, to grow roots into the experience of the sitting body, into the experience here and now of the feeling heart, sensitive heart, thinking mind. This open, mindful, and inclusive awareness of the present moment. So even though it might feel wild or even overwhelming in moments, maybe it's okay for the heart to be open and just allow everything to move. Maybe it's okay for defenses to soften Feeling the breathing body, breathing in, and then feeling the breathing body, breathing out. This ordinary rhythm of breathing in and breathing out can be a really useful anchor for the attention. We're not fixating or forcing this attention. It's more like a way back to the present moment knowing that the breath is coming in, knowing that the breath is going out. This ordinary experience of this sitting and breathing body just happens to be a more concrete and accessible experience here in the present moment. So we use it to come home to the reality of the present moment where we feel the body sitting and breathing in and breathing out. And then we can open to the other aspects of the body and the feeling heart and thinking mind. So we're not excluding anything. So breathing in, saying yes to the totality of our experience. And breathing out and saying yes to the totality of our experience without any need to fix or judge. Everything belongs.
Remember, you can always start over by landing back in the reality of the body sitting, the body breathing. It's not so much that the attention needs to go to the breath or to the body. It's already right here. So you're realizing that the sensations of breathing and the sensations of sitting, they're already right here in the middle of our experience. We're connecting, realizing the truth of the sitting body, something so simple, the breathing in and the breathing out. It's not about getting rid of the distracting thoughts as much as it is about remembering there's a sitting body here, a breathing body here.
there's a way for us all to be right in the middle in a generous and kind and fearless way where we don't feel obliged to control our experience or to even judge it. That generosity of the heart, it understands, like it or not, that everything belongs. That this moment, this activity in my body, this activity in my mind, the sounds around me, the world around me, that it can't be other than the way it is right now. It doesn't mean it's good, it just means it's the way that it is right now. So wisdom, the wise heart knows it's okay to relax. It's okay to allow things to be the way they already are. I don't have to be at war with the present moment. Just need to learn how to be awake, how to be intimate and fearless. kind. So in this relatively simple environment for another minute or so, we're practicing showing up. We're practicing being radically sensitive and open, very alive, very bright, sensitive, And the heart is tender, understanding the reality of suffering, so we're caring enough to be present right now. Importantly now, noticing how right, how good it feels to be present. Does it mean that the heart doesn't ache? It just means it feels good to be close, to be present. I don't know about you, but I think there's some spring energy. <laughs> this is, you know, the one of the most important teachings from the Buddha is things change. And we see this every year around this time, and we feel the strength of the sun. And however dark it seemed somewhere in January when it was gray and cold, you know, it's just so nice. doesn't mean it was nice then, but it's always nice. It's like space in the mind. Because there may be other dark, difficult things going on for folks in the room. And to realize that there is that truth of the difficulty doesn't mean it's not true, but it isn't the only truth. Part of the truth is, and and it's in motion, whatever it is. Which means, of course, it can get worse. We don't know. But it's in motion, and that matters, right? It's alive. And because it's alive, it matters how I'm relating to the difficulties, whether they're global difficulties or particular to your own life, your immediate situation, it really matters. So that's that's really impactful because it inspires this showing up in our lives. Even if we don't know how to show up, we can show up and notice what that sets in motion, whether it's helping or not. And if it's not helping, 
we show up in a different way. We keep learning. And that's really, I think, the essence of the Buddhist teachings. Um, I wasn't here last week. Uh, I think Jean Haley spoke in the morning. But we've uh, started to move from this general conversation about sila, which is the Pali word for integrity or this reverence for life, this commitment to non-harming, into the specific area of wise speech. And um, obviously this is an impactful place in life. And you know, maybe even remembering the kind of internal dialogue during the sit this morning, but just generally the kind of words that move through our mind. You know, we, we would notice if I started to beat somebody up or take something that wasn't mine, those sort of moral breaches would stand out. You know, I would notice that, you know, oh, that doesn't feel good. But when my mind is actively, you know, the thinking process, the internal dialogue in the mind is actively throwing somebody out of my heart, demeaning somebody, hating somebody, that tends not to stand out so much. Like we kind of, oh, that's okay. I'm not really doing anything. So this is part of the conversation this week, maybe for a couple of weeks, when we look at right or wise speech, helpful speech, and just learning to take responsibility. Well, what actually are we setting in motion in our own heart and in the world around us when, even if I'm not saying out loud, but even internal dialogue, what is that setting in motion? Because I, you know, I'm sure if we think back to words we've spoken or words other people have spoken to us, like even 10, 20 years ago, those words, both really beautiful healing words and really hateful destructive words, right, are still, right, that imprint or that impression in our hearts still today reverberating and probably for others you know, in our lives, that words we spoke to somebody, a sibling when you were a kid, you know, they might still have an ongoing reverberation in your relationship some 30 years later. So we want to, you know, realize that in terms of how we create or set in motion the future, our words really matter. In the Dhammapada, this collection of verses, it said, Better than a thousand sentences is one sensible phrase on hearing which one becomes peaceful. And it's, uh, you know, one of the most impactful instructions for wise speech is this capacity to pause. <laughs> right? Not, why would we suppose the first thing that comes to mind would be helpful? Are constructive, right? Like, it, it's only if we have the wrong understanding that my internal processing, you know, the habit energies about how I think, that that's me. If I think that my internal dialogue is me, then we might imagine my first reaction, my first impulse is correct because it's me. Why would I offer up to myself something that's not helpful. But when we realize that internal processing isn't me, it's just nature. It's the nature of all of those causes and conditions that make up this habit-bound conditioned mind, right? Well, then when we realize that all of that habit energy isn't me, it's just just, uh, habit and nature. It's impersonal. And some of that impersonal nature of my conditioned mind actually has some real wisdom, and a lot of it is pretty not helpful and uh, even worse, you know, really coming out of some, you know, uh, negative or hateful little programming loop. Nobody loves me, or I'm better than, or I don't trust, you know, these biases that have been conditioned into culture. But when we realize that impersonal nature of our own mind, our own heart's conditioning, emotional, mental conditioning, 
then we can, we're willing to be observant. This is what we mean by pausing or refraining from saying the first thought that comes to mind. But realizing, oh yeah, that thought's coming to mind, this other thought's coming to mind. And then there's this little quiet thought. And that might end up being the most skillful thing we can do and say. But it might be 15 seconds later where we've had already 20 impulses to react and then the 21st impulse actually maybe not that impactful but there it is because it doesn't have as much momentum as the defensive impulses hit back before they hit you again impulse you know we have so many of these basic survival instincts woven into our thinking and speaking habits and they really come out of the power dynamics of you know gender and age and race and all these things because we're like so many other species of animals you know we're a hierarchical social breed or species and so we've got all that genetic and cultural programming and so when we're in an interaction with other human beings and you know we're going to engage right we're going to all of that programming's coming to the surface and it's all about survival and fitting in and belonging and having power over and getting what we think we need and not wanting to make a fool out of ourselves so a lot of that programming is pretty you know I'm not sure what the right word is but primitive or primal or not very nuanced and we have, as a human being, we have this amazing capacity to be reflectively aware, which we, that's what this practice is all about, right? Being mindfully aware, it's like this. I'm just talking about the internal swirl of our one impulse after another, what we should say, how we, you know, even in terms of our body language, you know, looming over, retreating back, all those, you know, it's not just the words we want to speak, but just how the body is held, all that programming. And because now we have, we're realizing this capacity to be aware, mindfully aware, feeling the way it is, then in that sort of wild movement of impulses coming and going, and the pause and the refraining from grabbing onto anyone, right? we can, in a sense, taste or sense whether that response would be helpful, contribute. And this, you know, I've mentioned this quite a bit lately, but it really, those, that discernment is really arising that there is a way for me to show up, to respond with words or with silence, with some body stance. There is a way to respond that actually might contribute to the well-being, my own well-being and the well-being of the others and the action and the interaction. Like it that even that framing that it's taking care of me or it's taking care of you, even that is one of those ancient or primal thoughts. Like there's no way for me to show up in this moment that might be healing for everybody here. Might be helpful for everybody here in the long run. And that's this, uh, so part of morality, the most important, and now thinking about morality in terms of speech, is this capacity for restraining, refraining, pausing. Because it doesn't, we don't give it enough emphasis. It always ends up sounding like I have to repress myself. But it's just creating, refraining means creating some space so we see the full terrain of how we might respond in the moment. And we're not destined to do the first impulse that might have a lot of momentum but might not actually fit or be helpful in this moment. But instead, because it's so it's not repression, I actually feel that impulse to want to respond to say this in this way with this body posture. And then I'll feel it in a sense and discern that doesn't seem so helpful or I have no idea if that's helpful or not, so I'm going to pause until I have better discernment whether it will actually contribute to 
to my well-being and the well-being of others. And even just that little teaching, when in doubt, like we're about to say something, respond, when in doubt, pause. Think about how much suffering (laughs) would have been avoided in our lives if we just had really learned that as a kindergartner and been trained all through elementary and high school and post-secondary life, you know, when in doubt whether what we're going to say or do is helpful, develop this capacity to pause. Because, you know, we human beings, we have this capacity to actually imagine ourselves saying what we're conditioned or have the impulse to say. You know, I can imagine it. It's like I have my own production studio or theater troupe, you know, and I can act it out in my heart and mind. Okay, so I say this. How is this other person going to respond and feel? You know, and we, this is the discerning process. It's like, but it requires, what does it require? Humility. Because if I think I know, like, that's what I was saying earlier. If this is me talking to me, I'm going to presume I already know what I'm doing and this response is the right response. But if instead I presume I don't know what's helpful, then I'm going to actually want to taste and feel and think through, in a sense, feel through, imagine through the different impulses that come up to say this, to act this way. Oh yeah, so what is that set of motion? What kind of impression will that leave in my heart if I say that, act that way, engage that way? What's going to be the leftover of that? Okay, how about this other How about this other? How about this other? Until we imagine something that leaves, even in the imagining, a a decent taste like, that feels pretty clean. That feels pretty light. That feels in the direction of well-being, my own and everybody else's well-being. I'm still not sure. I'm not going to presume I'm arrogantly right. This is an appropriate way to respond or appropriate thing to say but I'm a little bit closer. And and then even when we you know, decide to go ahead and say that in that way at that time, we're still relying on mindful awareness, that presence to actually see, is it helpful? What is it setting emotion? What is left over in my heart? Guilt, remorse, or a sense of, oh yeah, not perfect, but it feels like that was the best I could do in that situation. And for the most part, I really came with the intention to take care of all of everybody involved. Right? I'm not here to slander somebody, to you know, use power over. I'm really here to take care. Using the power I have in this moment with my voice, with my words, but the intention is to take care with that presumption that I don't have to distinguish between taking care of myself and others, which is a very sort of simplistic view that we want to challenge. Because we justify so much violence and oppression with this idea of like, hey, it's either me or you, and I'm in it for me, not for you. And this is... This is really the birthplace of morality when we realize that's that view, dog-eat-dog view, actually turns out not to be acceptable. It doesn't feel good in our heart. It only feels good when a human being doesn't check. Like they're so busy surviving and taking advantage where they can take advantage because they have power. So busy doing that they never bother to realize, okay, this situation is here. This interaction with these people is here. This is how I feel into the power dynamic, the power that I have, the power that they have. This is the dynamic. These are the impulses I have to respond, to show up. This is what all of that feels like. When we're in that dynamic and we feel the impulse to use the power that we have to take whatever we want, then the obvious question is, how does that feel? 
But if we're so busy, if we're not actually interested in that question, how does it feel to be taking advantage of others or to be neglecting the well-being of others, to imagine it doesn't matter how others are doing, right? So in this way, we're not being good because we should. We're being good because not being good doesn't feel good right here. But you see, it requires that moral sensitivity, like that willingness to actually be interested in the question. What way of engaging, what way of being in community actually feels good, leads, leaves a good taste? And so real morality in a human sense requires that a human being has the space in their life, their lives to actually feel, be present with the karmic, as we say in Buddhist practice, the karmic fruits of how I'm showing up in life, the kind of person, the kind of qualities, like the four we chanted about. You know, when I'm here responding from a place of friendliness and compassion and appreciation and equanimity, then that feels, you just checked, that feels pretty good. But when I'm here responding to not friendliness but ill will, not compassion but aggression, not appreciation but envy and jealousy and, you know, not fair, it's not fair, it's my turn, and not equanimity but agitation, then, you know, we get a different world, both in our own little bubble, but the water world then reflects all of that negativity in our own hearts that we bring out. So here's some words from the Buddha on wise speech. And what is wise speech? Abstain, abstaining from lying from divisive speech. Here, divisive speech means speech where the intention is to sow discord. Because there's speech that might, you know, rock the boat and be quite disturbing to people. But the intention, like when people sometimes necessarily need to speak the truth, and that speaking of the truth might be disturbing. Like, you know, just in our intimate relationships, there are times when we have to say, when you treat me this way, when I hear you saying this, this is what it feels like to me, right? And that might be really shocking and hurtful to that person, but it may be really helpful for the relationship, even though it can create a little disturbance that can reverberate for a while. But to not say it might be the cause of much more harm than saying it. So divisive speech means the purpose of the speech isn't healing, but we're using speech as a kind of weapon. The purpose of the speech is to hurt or cause harm. So abstaining from mistruths, lying, abstaining from divisive speech meant to cause uh, division, from speech that's purpose is to abuse, and from idle chatter. This is called wise speech. And then the Buddha said, Practitioners, a statement endowed with the five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. What five? It's spoken at the right time. It's spoken in truth. It's spoken affectionately. Right with a tone that actually helps. It's spoken beneficially. Yeah, the intention is to bring, you know, healing for all concerned. It's spoken with a mind of goodwill. In another place, for the person who transgresses, transgresses in one thing, I tell you, there is no unskillful deed that is not to be done. Which one thing? This telling a deliberate lie. The person who lies, right? anybody, any one of us, because I'm sure we've all done it, when we 
rationalize or justify intentionally telling a, a lie, the Buddha says that um, we're basically transcending the concern. We're suppressing or maybe better repressing the concern that what we do doesn't matter. Right? Like if we can justify telling a lie, then we're basically that yucky feeling that's there, like, oh, it doesn't matter. And then he says, there's no unskillful action one might not do. Because if I can repress that yucky feeling when I'm speaking mistruth in order to get what I want or whatever, then I can justify all kinds of things. And we all sort of know this. I mean, we see it playing out, I think, in our society about just how effective it can be just to say what we want to say, regardless of whether it aligns with reality. Right, And then the more people do that, it sets something in motion. It's really destructive when people speak and get away with mistruths. And so this is the thing, to not always point the finger at others, but just to look at, well, what is our relationship with speaking the truth and even shading the truth and how we use that? And then one more thing, this is a little bit more involved, but it, it gives an example of how nuanced it can be. The criteria for deciding what is worth saying. And so this is this little system the Buddha has for us. In the case of words that a wise one knows to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, unendearing, and disagreeable to others, one does not say them. So that's one case. So that's obvious, right? There's no value at all. Don't say it. In the case of words where a wise person knows that it's true, but unbeneficial, unendearing, and disagreeable to others, one does not say them. Right? So it's true, but it's not helpful. So you can't use truth as a weapon just because it's true. I'm going to say this. But the purpose isn't to be helpful. It's to maybe use power or something get what you want. So the third case, in the case where the words, in the case of words where the wise one knows that it's true and beneficial, but unendearing and disagreeable to others, one has the sense of the proper time for saying them. I like that. It's like, okay, it's true. I think ultimately it's going to be helpful. See, wouldn't it make sense for us to be thinking, okay, I want to say what I need to say because it's true and helpful, but they're not going to like hearing it. So I want to find the right time so they can take it in. Why would we say it at a time when they're just going to reject it because it's hurtful? Right. So how can I find the right time and place to say what needs to be said so I actually, my intention that these words are helpful for myself and for others? The fourth case, in the case of words that a wise one knows to be untrue, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, <laughs> one does not say them. And it's so easy when we're in that situation and we know it's not true, but you know we'll make the person like us or we won't rock the boat. And, and it's hard to keep quiet or to say, who knows? You know, to I mean, there are ways not to uh, sort of put it right in their face, but to not. And people use those situations to pull us in, like to make us complicit with what is not true and not helpful. It can be. This is where we really get called to task. And for some of us white people, um, you know, I just see this at times. I see with humility, how difficult it is in times to be ready when somebody is saying something that doesn't feel right. But uh, it's so easy, by not say, even by not saying anything, let alone you know, agreeing with them. But even keeping quiet is in a way to be complicit. Like when, Think about time when someone's gossiping in an unhelpful way and putting somebody down in a way that might be related to their gender or might be related to their class or what their race or whatever it might be. 
And it really, your heart knows that this is not good. So how do we uh, align with the truth and align with our desire to take care of the well-being of ourselves and others in these moments? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying avoiding our responsibility doesn't feel good. I mean, from my personal experience. So even though it's hard, doesn't mean we're off the hook. (laughs) So I I think it is important for us to acknowledge how, uh, how nuanced that training is to be able to own the moment, you know, own the integrity in the moment. It, I find it personally very hard. But feeling sorry for myself because it's hard doesn't help. It's like, how do we get to training? One of the things um, we're negotiating, some of you have heard of ASDEC, um, Anti-Racism uh, Study and Discussion Circle. We're going to actually meet with Okogeyaman, who's one of the founders of that great uh, organization. They've been leading these 10-week trainings around anti-racism for years. and um, But they have a training called Slight of Mouth. Did you ever do that? Yeah. So we're going to invite them to do it at Common Ground. But it's actually this training, like, to be ready in those moments, and, you know, in particular around race, where something happens and the heart feels like, okay, I have a responsibility to speak wisely in this moment, and it might cause some harm, or some hurt, rather, but it will be for everybody's benefit, and to not speak won't feel good and won't help the wider community. And just how to sort of show up in those moments, and it's not just, of course, about race. It's so many places in our lives, around gender, around class, around power, basically, how power works, how equity works in our lives. And it's just so easy to do the same thing over and over, thinking that it doesn't matter, that it's not my responsibility to correct how power moves. <laughs> you know, that it's some, we need a leader to do it. You know, and when a leader comes by, I'm ready to follow. <laughs> but we, you know, just to sort of own like the world becomes this way cumulatively based on how we're all behaving. And so we all have to own our little corners, our little conversations, interactions with other human beings. You know, the quintessential discussion over Thanksgiving dinner, you know, when you're there with the the family. It's like we're all responsible for that conversation and being real, like real about who we are and what we're sensitive to in those moments. And it isn't supposed to be pretty. It's supposed to be healing. Right? That's what we're interested in, not just getting through the dinner or the interaction, but we're interested in the long-term healing of our own heart and the hearts of everybody around us in our communities. Right? That's, that's what we wake up to as we cultivate more mindfulness, as we realize there's no liberation, there's no real freedom when beings are being unconsciously oppressed. I don't think people and other living beings can be consciously repressed without living human beings, at least, doing something about it. But unconsciously, we can do all kinds of terrible things. I mean, history shows this over and over and over again. Unconsciously meaning not having an honest relationship to what it feels like to be oppressing others and to be neglecting the well-being of others. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, there's more here too. There's one more or two more. So in the case, the one I just read, in the case of words where a wise one knows that they're unfactual and untrue, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, one does not say them. In the case of words that a wise one knows to be true, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable, one does not say them. Right? So you speak because it's helpful to speak it. doesn't mean it won't be useful, helpful later. But if it's not helpful now, why say it now? And then the last case is, if in the case of words where a wise person knows that they're factual, true, beneficial, endearing and agreeable, one has the sense of the proper time for saying them. Why is that? 
because the wise person has sympathy for living beings. Right? So our speech and our actions are really there because we care. And I'll just end with this wonderful quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, very short, but it really <coughs> teaches us about our you know, engagement with the world. Thich Nhat Hanh, this great activist, Buddhist monk and teacher, if you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. It's such a beautiful thing. It's like by bringing this sensitivity of mindful awareness into our interactions, into our dialogues, we're going to be transformed. Because the sensitive heart cares. So if we bring awareness, mindful awareness, this embodied awareness into our relationships, the world will be transformed. Just try to be abusive and sensitive at the same time. It doesn't work. And you know what else doesn't work? When somebody else is being abusive because of their conditioned habits and everybody else is very sensitive and fearless, it also doesn't work. I mean, I often feel this way about politics, you know, globally, locally, that when enough people are willing to feel not too busy, but really to feel publicly what they're feeling when the world is this way, things begin to change. But when we think it's somebody else's responsibility or that I'm too busy, and we're not in communication about what we feel and what we're seeing, well, then things don't necessarily change. And just this is so poignant to me about my own role you know, as a citizen, as a human being, like how do I show up? And I just notice that tendency to want to put the responsibility out there on somebody else as opposed to, okay, this is what I'm feeling. How do I, how do I sort of be truthful to that? How do I speak that? What does that look like? Because often it sounds a little bit like complaining, you know, Fetching, right, that uh, Yiddish phrase that's sort of, it's a kind of gossip of just, you know, complaining about how bad the world is. Instead of like, what might actually be something that builds towards a healing and fierce response to what's moving. So we have a little time before the children come. It'd be nice to hear from a couple of you. Your own sort of learning in this world of speech would be great to hear from. I, I really appreciate the words on a right speech, and I think one of the questions that I sit with is um, in the context of an abusive relationship that you've had in your life with someone you have both a loving and an abusive dynamic with, um, how to make that distinction between compassion and caretaking, and caretaking being this, I guess, my understanding of the word that it's like kind of a compassion that's gone to the point of putting your needs aside um, and that you, you recognize like here is this person in pain and here is this person who themselves has a difficult history and so abusive behavior is coming from a difficult place. But So you have that compassion but then caretaking means like I'll put my needs aside to, that's for, I guess for me that's the hardest moment yeah. of right speech. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm, I'm sure that a lot of us relate to that. And I think it has a lot to do just in understanding what mindfulness is, because showing up in any situation like the one you described, mindfulness doesn't have preferences, like that sensitivity, that wise sensitivity. It has a real depth or subtlety. It has a real breadth. It really senses the breadth of the dynamic both through time, but also collectively, like how this dynamic between you, me, and another person is sort of acting out a, a bigger pattern in our culture, for example, how it might be acting out a bigger dynamic in our culture. So mindfulness doesn't have preferences in that way. So it isn't neglecting my needs because over the others. It isn't caretaking in that way because the question is, why... In the moment, why isn't wisdom sensitive to my needs? What's not being seen? 
So just to ask those questions like, as we're, especially if we have a sense that there's a pattern and that the pattern isn't that healthy, then to ask the question, well, what else is the heart out of habit not sensitive to, not noticing in this moment? What isn't being seen? And when being seen, the response is wiser. What else needs to be seen? What do I need to train myself to see that's not being seen? And then related to that sort of breath is this, my response is coming, compassion is really sensing that I'm in it for the long haul. I'm not so interested in something that alleviates tension right now if the root of the problem doesn't get addressed. I'm really interested, because of the compassion, I'm really interested in resolving this in the long haul, even if it means things are going to get wild or um, confusing for a while. right? Because sometimes all we know is not to keep doing the same thing so we do something different and it might really throw the relationship off because all we know is I'm not going to do that again. right? And so we do something differently. But we know we need to change it up because the way it's been unfolding, that isn't working, that isn't helpful. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Maybe time for one more comment if there's anything comes to mind. Thank you very much for the talk today, Mark. And I have been sitting with this a little bit in the um, that this is not about like rules and doing things right. It's really about this heart, this heart being free, at ease, finding peace. And I'm in an interview process right now, and um, I had a the first part of it was a phone interview. So there was a lot of power on the other end of the line, and uh, something I heard something come up uh, in a comment. I had asked a question, and someone responded. And in the comment, it was hurtful and untrue about about me, about this heart. It wasn't, you know, like personal, but it was like, oh, that's not really right. And I kind of made a note of it, and the interview went on. And then as we were getting ready to hang up, I said, somehow wisdom was there. And um, and I said, I'd like to address this thing that was said. Um, and um, and it, what, it didn't come from a place of anger or frustration. It simply was not true. And that was, that was different. You know, it was really, but it needed to be said, and um, it was surprising, I guess. Yeah. And then the question for us all, what is that particular muscle that Julie is talking about that allows the heart to take that chance? Like, because it, it's really recognizing maybe not acting on that doesn't feel right. So I'm going to take the chance of, sort of letting that energy move and speaking those words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.